I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Aaron Velarde, the founder and CEO of Vote Run Lead, the country's largest and most diverse training program for women to run for office. Aaron and I discuss why we're so behind in this country in terms of women's representation in government. We also talk about what Aaron's organization, Vote Run Lead, is doing about it. And Aaron and I discuss our predictions for the 2020 election cycle and whether we'll see a repeat of the wave of women winning their elections like we saw during the 2018 midterms. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Aaron Velarde. Aaron Velarde, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I saw a talk where you were showing the ranking of representation by women at the highest levels, right? And there was a ranking of countries by countries. And the U.S. came in rather low. (laughs) And I just have one quick clarifying question for that. Was that at the government level or all executive leadership? That, I think, is the Interparliamentary Union, IPU, which keeps the records around parliaments. So that's the most sort of equitable body across various governments. Um, And so that's actually what they're comparing. So our Congress to, you know, say like the British Parliament, the UK Parliament. I don't know what year you did that talk, but where are we now in comparison to that year? And how do we rank with other countries? So I, geez, it it changes frequently um, as elections happen across the globe. But um, I can actually pull that up and tell you that it's not good. Um, (laughs) Right now we are tied at 76th, uh, according to the Interparliamentary Union with Afghanistan. And that is from March of 2019. So it looks like, um, and now we are 83. So actually we've gone down. Um, we have, our ranking has lowered in the uh, last couple of years, which often means because even though we had quite a wave of women, right, the 2018 election is often called a wave of women, especially when it comes to Congress. We didn't see that large of a dramatic increase. It moved to about 28%. And You know, that was fantastic because it actually ushered in a wave of women of color. It ushered in a wave of young women, but it wasn't that kind of exponential growth or getting us anywhere near, you know, parity or reflective, you know, which would be the majority. We should be closer to 51 or 52 percent to be fully reflective of women's uh, representation in this country. So um, and you see other countries making different kinds of progress ahead of us as we remain, you know, pretty stuck. Right. Because I think one of the points you made in that talk is that we were at 20 percent and we've been at 20 percent in, in terms of representation for 20 years. Mm hmm. That's right. So that is when I that statistic is around the state legislatures. And same thing, 2018, we saw a state legislative wave happen, very much mirrored what we saw at the congressional level. So predominantly uh, Democratic women um, rising through the ranks for the state legislatures. I think there we are also so I think the Congress is something like 24 percent. And I think actually the uh, state houses are around 28 percent. And a fantastic resource is actually something called the Center for American Women in Politics, which tracks all of these numbers really closely, um, you know, as either people retire or things change. They're doing a really great job of of keeping those numbers up to date. But again, it's pretty stagnant, right? It's not enough to make significant change. You end up having to have women who are taking really, really deep risks um, in order for policy change to occur rather than sort of a sea change where you see a more equitable government or more equitable legislature. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the Center of American Women in Politics because I I interviewed them at least once or twice. And I remember Kelly Dittmar from there, you know, saying something that really stuck with me. It was before the 2018 midterm. It was before the election happened. And there were a a historic number of women running for office. And everyone was really excited about the fact that we had so many women running for office. Right. And then she pointed out the fact that like 
all of these women won't win, right? So we have, you know, this is a multi-layered issue. We have, you know, getting women to run for office, we're having them winning their elections. And then, you know, there's something that you mentioned in your talk that really stuck with me. You said something about term limits, right? We forget that the fact that these women, you know, once they actually win, they actually have to stay in office. And then, you know, sometimes they aren't reelected. So we have all of these, these multi-layered issues that keep women out of office and keep these percentages low. Well, and you also have pretty weak party infrastructure. There's um, a great article out right now. I will find it and share it with your audience about, you know, really questioning, is there a real um, pull within the Republican Party to actually elect women? Now, I think some Republican women will tell you yes, including, you know, some younger uh, Republican congresswomen who are doing things outside of the party leadership. But there isn't the same kind of concerted effort um, that you see on the left. But let's also remember that the Democrats' effort towards recruiting women is pretty new, and they still do things that actually uh, you know, um, for example, they, you know, after the win of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who beat a long-term incumbent, the DCCC, which is the um, Democratic Congressional Campaign Arm, said, you know, any vendors, any people who do business, any consultants, that sort of economy around political campaigns, you can't do business with these insurgent candidates like an AOC in the future, or else you'll be blacklisted from doing business with the DCCC endorsed candidates. And that was basically a slap in the face to non-traditional candidates, which primarily are women, overwhelmingly women of color. Um, so there's, you know, while we do have one party sort of doing better than the other around recruiting and activating and uplifting women as part of the leadership pipeline, it's really a reckoning we have to have with ourselves as a country, with all of our political parties to do better. Yeah, you know, that's a really complicated to do. And I've actually asked several people about that because the DCCC, you know, what they did was, you know, they were trying to discourage, I guess, presumably, like, I don't really know what the what the reason was behind it, or if they actually clarified what the reason was behind it. But they were trying to discourage people from replacing long-term incumbents, I think, you know, because you do have some people that you don't want to be replaced. And there's some people who won't be replaced, like like Maxine Waters, right? But you don't want to replace someone who is bringing diversity to the party, right? Like, a, you know, a woman of color, you know, or just a person of color or, you know, women. And I think that that is what that decision was targeted at. But then you also catch a lot of people in decisions like that who are making the party more diverse, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? So it's, it's complicated. And I don't really know what the answer is. I think the answer is actually not for the party to make, right? You, to rig the game, it's for the voters to decide. We know when there are more, you know, voters in a primary, when voters have candidates who look like them, when voters are excited about the candidates, that voter turnout increases. You know, you saw it in a place like Ayanna Presley and Ilhan Omar. You know, these, they had huge surges in voter turnout. And yes, there was, you know, the sort of momentum nationally that was happening about get out the vote. But when you have someone in your district that you, you know, you're excited to vote about, that where the voters have a choice, you're going to have more um, Democratic participation, sort of small d Democratic participation. So, I mean, that's a choice that the party has to make about keeping party power. For folks like me who work in you know, this sort of nonpartisan space where we're not beholden to the political parties, those rules are diminishing participation, right? They're actually not generative. They're diminishing the likelihood that long shot candidates that the women I'm training have an opportunity to, you know, have a shot at getting, you know, the best young up and comer digital company to work with them or the, you know, kind of hotshot new consultants that might be, you know, giving her a, an outsider's edge. So I listen, everybody's going to have rationale that works for them. But for the larger democracy, it makes more sense to have 
more people run, especially in places where these districts are, you know, overwhelmingly red or overwhelmingly blue. You have to have intra-party competition in order to keep the the party healthy, in order to keep the age diversity of the party, you know, spread out so that you have different perspectives. Um, and so, you know, so that your district may have changed like a, like an AOC district. That district had undergone some significant changes um, that and those needs weren't being met. So I might disagree with you a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I, the, I guess I don't have a firm decision. I just don't really know what the right what the right thing is. Right. And I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking, well, like what they're saying makes sense to me. Right. It is more democratic to let the voters decide. Right. And not right. to have the party, you know, kind of you know moving in one direction and say, hey, but this is what we want for our party. Right. Um, you know, and I think that possibly the best direction to go is to make sure that your incumbents are meeting the needs of the constituents. So it doesn't really matter who primaries them, right? If they're meeting the needs of the constituency, then they won't be replaced. Yeah. If you're in touch with that's exactly right. If you are, you know, representative of the people, if you're communicating with your constituents, if you're showing up and going back and forth and getting on those planes and trains and automobiles from DC and, and doing that trek, you know, your constituents will see it. Um, and if you're adaptive to the times, you know, keeping your core values, of course, but that you're learning. Well, if you get more information and you want to make a different decision, you know, we want people in office who are lifelong learners, right? Who are, are willing to look at um, a situation when, you know, a policy, when new information comes in, when new data comes in. You know, I think we're living that right now with this global pandemic, right? It's as if these new data, these new figures, um, the, the sort of data points of just even wearing a mask or not, they're, they're actually not changing our behavior. And that's poor policymaking, right? We expect our leaders to take that information in and to, and to do their jobs with a bigger picture um, to make smarter choices and smarter decisions on our behalf. And women actually do that really well. There's a lot of research that shows that women tend to have a different kind of listening approach to their leadership. Um, They take a a broader set of opinions. They may talk to more people. Um, You know, there was a Harvard business study from a couple of years ago where nine out of the 10 uh, traits met everyone ranked women leaders better than male leaders, except for decisiveness. But that's actually because women tend to have a long-term view, um, tend to really see multiple sides of an issue. They want to, you know, learn more before they make that decision. And, you know, I'll be talking sort of women do this or women don't do that. I'm speaking broadly. I'm speaking about what the research shows us. Of course, there's lots of exceptions to these rules. Of course, there's lots of, you know, anomalies to this. Um, But but uh, I, I do think that is one of the things that that makes women strong leaders is the ability to see an issue from multiple sides, to really look at who's most vulnerable, to really look at who's benefiting um, and make those decisions with a big picture view. Yeah. So, you know, again, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with sitting with, you know, considering both sides of an argument or a debate and not coming to a firm conclusion. Another thing that you point out is that there are a lot of organizations that help women train and run for office. But one of the things that's missing, one of the missing pieces often is recruiting women, right? So you can have a lot of people who are ready to train, but if you don't have people who are being recruited, then you can't really do much with that. So what made you decide that that was where you wanted to focus? I wanted to focus on women in politics um, as an undergrad, actually, at NYU. And I had really sought out this intersection between you know, political power, political science, and gender studies. And I ended up double majoring as a gender studies and political uh, science major there, but didn't see very many places of that intersection. Um, there were, you know, the, the, the Rutgers Center was set up, um, and I got an internship at something called the White House Project, which um, was started by a woman named Marie C. Wilson, who is the founder of Take Your Daughter to Workday, um, just an amazing 
amazing decades-long feminist and who I consider my political mother. Um, and she really gave me a lot of latitude, a lot of leeway to create a program uh, at the White House Project. It was actually called Vote Run Lead. And so I ran Vote Run Lead as a, as a traditional political field operation for about nine years, um, going across the country, training women to run, um, very much in the right place at the right time, very much using the career services center of my, you know, <laughs> of my university. Um, and lucky for me, it wasn't in D.C. It was in New York um, because at the time she was the head of the Miss Foundation for Women. Um, and she was doing a bit of double duty uh, towards her end of her tenure at, at Miss Foundation and ready to go full time at the White House Project. And really, um, I was a part of that moment to really scale the organization and, um, you know, had the opportunity to crisscross the country talking to women about the necessity not just to vote, but to consider running for office. And that was really, those, those are really exciting times. It was uh, 2004, 2005 when we really got off the ground. So about 15 years I've been doing this work. Wow. So, so one of the things that you point out is that often women, when you talk to these women, you were going across the country, a lot of women feel that they aren't qualified to run for office. And that's one of the main issues that keeps you know these numbers low. It's actually a really complicated picture because the fact that women don't feel qualified when they often are, I think is a product of our culture. You know, women see city councils who are full of men and there are no women. You know, that conveys right. the message that women, there's something wrong with women, right? And women can't can't run. So what did you see when you were asking women, you know, to run for office and, you know, them saying they didn't feel qualified? Well, the good news is, is that following the 2016 election with the ascension of uh, a man with no political or military experience becoming president of the United States, tens of thousands of women popped their heads up and said, nope, damn, I'm qualified. <laughs> I got this. I can run for my city council. Um, and I do think there was a significant sea change um, and continues to be um, because I think there's a real question of competence. Um, and Post-2016, I have never seen so many women raise their hand to say, I can do this, who took a quick Google search of their you know, city council. And it was the same guy when they were kids growing up in this town that they decided to move back to as an adult and raise their own kids who was sitting on the local council. Or the, the lack of gender diversity in local and state government and really thinking that we had come further um, and really believing at their core that, that gender diversity mattered, right? The lived experiences of women mattered in policymaking. Prior to 2016 and the sort of 10, you know, 12 years of, of me doing this work, we, you know, we had research from a group called the Barbara Lee Family Foundation that talked about, um, you know, women sort of underqualifying themselves. But voters also doing that, right? We had research at the White House Project where, you know, we used to give tips like roll your sleeves up, you know, wear the suit jacket. Um, a lot of that has changed for the better. Um, a lot of that um, is shifting just just sort of a little bit with the times, with the acceleration of movements like Me Too, um, where we're talking about things that we weren't talking about before, um, with the necessary and, and powerful calls from women of color to have their place at the table. So there's definitely been a sea, a sea change in the last couple of years where that, that qualification, that mental mindset, we do a little bit less on that. But one of the things we did following the, the election in 2017 is we really reoriented our curriculum to meet this moment of, you know, women raising their hand to run um, because they may not have had political or electoral experience, but they were recognizing that the skills they had as, you know, owning a hair salon or, you know, raising kids for 15 years were transferable skills and that the other things Vote Run Lead could teach you. We could, you know, teach you how to put the budget together to run your campaign. We could teach you how to get a really good speech by telling a story and ending it with an ask and, you know, some nonverbal cues, right? We could teach you some of the things that would make you, you know, run a successful campaign. Um, and that 
that curriculum change was called run as you are and run as you are really, it really hit home for a lot of women. You know, we, we stopped telling women, don't worry, you're qualified. You know, here's why da, da, da. And it was like, you're enough. You're enough just as you are. And this other stuff, you know, we'll figure that out, but what you're fired up about, what you are, you know, enthusiastic about what you're angry about, other people are angry about too. And you have a responsibility to get in there and do something. And, and that's, been this like underbelly, I think, of, of women's leadership right now that that I'm really proud of, you know, that I think is is actually an exciting and uplifting and kind of inspiring part of everything that's happening. Right. You know, and I think that's the thing that's so endearing about just one example, Stacey Abrams, for instance, right? You know, when people tried to criticize her for her student loans or her past debt, and she was like, that's a part of who I am. That's my makeup. That's my journey. Right. And, you know, again, like the, the example you gave with 2016, this person who is, you know, woefully incompetent for the office, you know, became president. I think, you know, just seeing that is probably helpful to a lot of women realizing, you know, hey, I can do this. And in fact, I probably need to do this. Right. That's right. I need to do it. And if I'm not going to do it, who is? So a a real, um, I think, sort of radical self-reflection that actually that this was not, I couldn't wait for anybody else which was actually really cool too. Yeah. So what's this um, peer-to-peer organizing model that I think your org uses? What does that mean? We, you know, having had the base of the White House Project as our initial sort of nine-year inception, we're about, we just celebrated our fifth year anniversary at the end of, um, so we're almost six years old. Um, We created a network through something called the Women's Funds and Foundations across the country. So, you know, community foundations like the Greater Atlanta Community Foundation might also have the, you know, Women's Fund of Greater Atlanta. Um, And because Marie Wilson was the head of the Women's Foundation, uh, excuse me, the Ms. Foundation for Women, she understood that so many activists were receiving these local, you know, geographically local grants to, you know, go do put on a lobby day at the Hill or go talk to their legislature or help build a domestic violence shelter or create a hotline, um, that actually those were the women who needed to be in office because that public policy wasn't getting legislated. Um, And so it was through those connections around the country that we sort of had this initial groundswell of going around and saying, hey, you're a community activist. You have name recognition. People know you get things done. You know, you have all these leadership skills. Have you ever thought about actually, instead of lobbying the state house, how about you run for the state house? Um, And so in the beginning, There was a real clear network of networks, right? The the women's funding network around the country is, you know, dozens of of grant making organizations that do really beautiful work. But from there, our peer to peer network um, is really just women telling other women about Vote Run Lead. Um, and so giving them the tools they need to spread the word about us and to consider inviting other women into the process, because it's great if an elected official taps you on the shoulder, like Stacey Abrams says, hey, girl, I want you to run for office. I think you're qualified. You know, like, that's amazing. That's great. But if your girlfriend says, hey, I think you should really consider this seat, you can have those tougher, deeper layer conversations with her and say, well, here's what I would need to do that. And what do I do about my job? And, you know, how do I how do I manage the kids if I'm going to be at city council every Monday night? So there's a real power in the peer to peer network. Um, and last year in 2019, we um, did a 20-city training across America, nearly 1,000 women trained in person, a couple thousand women trained online. But of the women that showed up in person, uh, 80% of them had heard about it through a friend. Um, and so we it, it really works to say, I think you should go to this training. I think you should take this course and really start to consider it. And so the organizing model is really just, you know, evangelizing, if you will, for women to encourage, for men and women to encourage, you know, sort of untapped leadership in this country to consider public office and to use vote run lead as the resource. So how do you translate training to running to actually winning, right? So, you know, how do you help, you know, people that you've convinced to run for office? How do you help them win their campaigns? 
Well, as a 501c3, we, we don't support individual campaigns. We don't make endorsements. So we are, you know, we think there's a real magic um, into the network of Vote Run Lead. So we encourage you to find your campaign manager and campaign workers at our training. Um, Congresswoman Lauren Underwood talks about how, you know, sitting at her round table in a training in Chicago, she ended up with, you know, five or six, seven people who ended up working on her campaign in various capacities. Um, so to tap into the network of VRL for for whatever you need, for whether it be a donor, uh, asking them to donate to you, asking them to serve on your campaign, asking them to connect you to the right people, asking, you know, some women who attend are very connected to the political parties, asking for introductions. Um, so to really connect with the network is how we're supporting women who are really declared candidates and sort of in that home stretch of, say, you know, 10 months out. But um, as a charitable organization, our efforts are really in the education component so that they're running winning campaigns, that they are not falling into the traps of uh, things like unable to fire someone on their campaign team. You know, running a winning campaign might mean different things around time management if you're a mom. Um, having really frank conversations about the, you know, layers of oppression if you're a Black woman running for office and how it might be different for you um, door knocking in a certain neighborhood. And so we have a lot of real talk at Boat Run Lead. Um, for a while, we were actually calling a lot of conversations real talk. <laughs> um, <because laughs> you, you have to know that stuff. You have to hear it from the mouths of other women who have done it, who, who have these non-traditional paths or have not yet, you know, are not yet the norm because you, you can, it can get lonely. You can feel a little, you know, sort of frazzled when you're in the thick of it. Um, and you really, you need to lean on the network and you need to know that there are other women who've done this before and, and to be able to tap those women. So that's been pretty powerful for us. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Right. I mean, you know, those little things within your campaign can really tank your campaign. Right. right? Or if you're getting, you know, if you're door knocking and someone is hitting on you, it's like, oh, OK, we <laughs> talked about this at the vote run lead training. You know, like these <laughs> things happen to women that don't happen to men. Right. If a journalist is asking you about like who watching who's watching your kids was just the same conversation. How do you pivot from that? Um, if you're, you know, talking about tough conversations that no one else is talking about, if someone comes at you with a sexist attack, the research as, you know, sexist or racist or any kind of attack, you stand up for yourself, you know, and this is how you do it. And so those are the things that people feel kind of armed to go, okay, I'm, I'm prepared for this, as opposed to being really shocked that the world can be a not so great place, right? And so you have a little bit, you have just a little bit more like know-how for what the reality is going to be of once you, once you, you know, get out there. That makes total sense. I never actually thought about that, but that is a possibility. You could get on a hit on. That sounds awful. <laughs> right now, one of the things we're really doing at Vote Run Lead is a little bit of an anomaly, actually, from our traditional how to run for office training. We're running a series um, with the global pandemic. The first thing we did was called Your Kitchen Cabinet, Every Woman's Virtual Campaign Team. And it was a, a six-week uh, training every Saturday during the sort of beginning height of, of coronavirus where um, – we were actually providing scripts for, you know, candidates. Here's how you fundraise. You actually, you know, go back to the donors that have already given to you that have capacity. It's not a time to go after the $5 donor, you know, call time, checking in on the elderly, stop sending so many emails, you know, show up in a different way as a leader instead of just always, you know, sort of asking for a donation. Um, here's how you campaign, you know, here's creative ways to campaign that women around the country are sharing with each other who might be like flyering their buildings if they live in an apartment or, you know, just doing things differently. And so that was really tactical, really prescriptive about how to continue your campaign um, 
at a time actually where women did have a little bit of a feeling like, hey, should I pause what I'm doing? It's like, no, turns out your leadership is exactly what's needed right now, right? And every day it was becoming clearer that we needed a different kind of compassionate, um, you know, data-driven leader. And that's, you know, those are the women that were showing up each week. And so that felt really good. And a lot of other orgs have been using the materials and that feels good to have that spread. Now with the the murder of George Floyd and the the uprising and the movement for Black life and the kind of racial conversation we're having in the, in the United States, we're doing another kitchen cabinet series. Um, but this time we're actually deviating a little bit from the, you know, prescriptive running for office to really look at our democracy and to say, you know, what are the things that most of us didn't learn in high school history class? What are the stories and contributions of people of color and immigrants that have been written out of our history? What what do we need to know uh, in order to do better? Um, and how are these systems connected to some of the policymaking that's been made? And what does the future look like if we were to do this differently? It really, I think, resonates with people who are looking to lead differently. And that's something we're really excited about to to be able to provide a different kind of conversation and a different kind of grounding for folks who want to have a different kind of leadership moving forward. Yeah. But I feel like there's also a missing piece in preparing women to run for office, in preparing them to be successful while they're in offices. You know, there are some organizations that, you know, provide resources to them. But, you know, for instance, how to connect with their constituents, you know, remotely while they're in D.C. Should they do AOC style and have, you know, cooking sessions on Instagram? You know, I think that I think that's a missing piece as well. It is. And one of the groups that we partner with, um, we've been partnering with them for a little over a year now, is called Rep19, R-E-P-1-9. And they are targeted at elected officials. And August 8th, actually, Nikima Williams will be coming on. Um, she's just been selected by the Democratic Party of Georgia to to run for John Lewis's seat. May he rest in peace. And, you know, she's a state senator. Um, and so and she's a, an activist. And she, you know, how she's also a vote and lead alumni, which we're very proud of from a long, long, long days ago. Um, so. They're doing, they're bringing on elected officials each week. We're doing it in a partnership with them to talk about some of this stuff. And they're doing some really interesting, you know, everything from like AI to, you know, because there's just, there's policymaking like that coming across these legislators' desks. So, you know, things like you're talking about, about constituent services in, in this time of coronavirus. So um, that would be something I would check out. You can find that on votereadlead.org backslash events. All the Rep19 uh, VRL uh, events are, are listed there. And there's a library of resources also for elected officials. But I do, you know, if I had all the money in the world, that would be a big division of VRL, which for sure would be you know, giving women the breathing room to really try out and, and flex a different kind of leadership style in these somewhat archaic political bodies. You know, um, some of these legis you know, some of these literal capital buildings, you know, didn't have bathrooms for women on the same floors as bathrooms for men until however many years ago. You know, there's some really old stuff that's just like left over, you know, and, and still hanging on, on the ways folks do business and on even on how people get committee chairmanships, right? And still they're called chairmanships and they're tied to seniority. So this new wave of women is less likely to have a senior position at a, at a committee level. I would love to be able to do more into helping folks really figure out how to navigate that almost like that first year, their sort of freshman year, if you will, of public office. Right, right. That's really important. So if anyone's listening and they're interested in starting that org, I mean, or, you know, giving you a huge donation so that you can start that wing of yeah, the you know, maybe like girl. a million or two a year, not that much That's money, right. you know. <laughs> well, I think about, and I think about, you know, we're talking a lot about AOC and about how I think when women, especially, you know, women, really progressive women, the moment they take office, you know, the attacks begin, 
right? They focus solely on women often and on women of color, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, how to navigate that once you're in office so it doesn't ruin your re-election, right? I think that's really important because a lot of these seats, you know, these women who, you know, took office in 2018 when we were really excited about that, you know, possibly their seats are kind of, you know, not as certain as they were before because of these attacks. I think that's definitely happening in the in sense that when you are, you know, and I think about my friend Ilhan Omar. Ilhan is um, uh, also a Vote Run Lead alum. She is so good to the organization. I'm actually looking. I have a, an advanced copy of her book. And like, yes, I'm bragging a little bit because I'm like, that's super cool. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't think there's anybody who has taken as much heat, like literal heat and threats um, to herself and to her family than Ilhan has in the last couple of years as a congressperson. And it is a masterclass you know, yes, there were definitely some bumps along the way in the beginning. Um, and I think she's she's learned from them, particularly around um, some of the language around anti-Semitism. But it has been so far a masterclass in not letting that like suck all your energy, you know, not letting that be the only thing that you're fighting back. She's she's smart and selective about where she hits back. She comes together with the squad when it is a, you know, a collective. Why don't they go back to their countries, you know, even though they're all American citizens, <laughs> um, you know, and just continues to be pushing out op eds and thought leadership pieces and moving a dialogue and a conversation on Twitter and in The Washington Post about you know, just new ideas that no one was really talking about before. And there is something really um, amazing about the resilience because that can wear on you, right? Your, your safety, your children's safety, your, the level of security that goes into that, you know, and that's at the congressional level, but this happens, we know on the local level too. And so when you don't have the, you know, the thousands of Twitter fans that are giving you that kind of love or the other places that you get that resilience, it can be really tough. And so we, we've done a little bit about what it means to really be aware of the online harassment that might come. Um, you know, how do we want to behave in this world so that that doesn't diminish our light, so that that doesn't diminish our power while keeping us safe, while, you know, being honest about the reality of that conversation, particularly for women of color, um, and, and But still, how do we persevere? Because that is a tactic to quiet our political power. That is a tactic to quiet our voice. And that, like, we can't let them win. Our resilience, our perseverance is, is another testament to our own power. You're absolutely right. And Ilhan Omar is the person that I always think of. She's always in the back of my head, in the back of my heart when I think about these conversations, right? Because I wish we could move into a place where we allowed women to lead and to be imperfect, you know what I mean? And I wish we could move and we could focus on how are they actually leading? You know, what, you know, bills or policies are they bringing forth? You know, how are they leading their communities versus like, did they make a mistake on Twitter today? <laughs> you know, and actually look at what's more important and allow them to grow. Right. And it feels like with women, everyone just goes on the attack and, you know, everyone just kind of piles on and, you know. Well, I, I mean, we are having a real stark there's a real stark difference like visibly between older uh, deeply conservative men and younger women of color deeply conservative white men and i i actually think that president trump is trying to sort of other the squad right like that is a tactic um because totally he's afraid of them um i wrote a piece for rewire a couple of probably now it's last year um 
I'm in New York City, so pandemic brain is like no concept of time. Um, but basically, you know, saying like Trump is afraid of the squad, right? That, that's a, a representation of people who have often been at the margins of power coming right to the front and center and saying, you know, we're here. We have a tremendous backing. We understand that our uh, power is collaborative, right? That, yes, there may be a hierarchy to sort of who steps forward when, but we're stronger together. Um, like when the four of them came together. Um, and I think there's just something really frightening for folks who have always done a pretty patriarchal, hierarchical model of sort of my way or the highway, right? Which is right now, I just think the sort of dichotomy, the split between where we're, where we're going and where we've been. What do you think about um, 2020? What are your, um, what's your predictions for 2020 in terms of women in office, right? I mean, White House aside, you know, Senate, Congress, legislature, is it going to look like 2018 better, worse? I have deep concerns about voter access right now around uh, mail-in balloting um, and, you know, people choosing to go to the polls and the consolidation of polling places for those who do want to go to the polls, Um I actually did vote in person in New York City. It was very safe um, in, in our primary in July. Um, and so, but what we're seeing is the consolidation of those of those polls, um, meaning like my usual polling place for me was the same, but it wasn't for my mother-in-law, you know. Uh, those are some those are some deep concerns. Um, HealthyVoting.org is a is a great website for sort of understanding state by state how to make a safe voting plan. TurboVote is a really great app, uh, text based um, app that really gives you the information to say, hey, here's what we have on file for you. You know, is this still your address? Do you need to print out your absentee ballot? You know, I think the the voter suppression is very real. So. I want to say all of that because I think the system that women are running in and, you know, the system that we're voting in matters. Um, But I think women are going to kick ass this year. (laughs) I think 2020 is going to be pretty remarkable. Um, And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, the results of, uh, of the November election. I don't think it'll be Wednesday because I think things will be different. I think it'll be a slow, beautiful trickle of win after win for women. Good. Good. I'm looking forward to that. Well, well, Erin Velarde, thank you for doing your part in this, a huge part in this. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me today to talk about all of these important issues. Thank you. 